following message was given by Demetrius White on Sunday, March 20th at Redemption Hill Church. For more information about the church, visit us online at www.redemptionhill.com. We're going to be tackling a very important subject this morning, dealing with the burial of Jesus Christ. And if you're like me, you you, you were probably like, man, what does this have to do with anything? I mean, this is such a small passage. It's just a passage about putting a man in a tomb. I mean, I could probably quote the Heidelberg Catechism and we could be out of here in like two minutes. But there's a lot going on in here in this passage. Let's pray and then we'll get started. Father God, we come to you in the name of your son, Jesus Christ. We ask you to help us this morning. Help me to preach your word, Lord. Help me to be clear. And Lord, please apply your word to the hearts of your people. Apply it in a way in which I can apply it, Lord. Open up our hearts and I pray, Lord, that you would touch the hearts of those who don't know Christ this morning, that they may come to you and take real joy in the person and works of Jesus Christ. If you would turn with me to the book of Mark, chapter 15, we'll be looking at the, at verses 42 through 47 this morning. Starting at verse 42, it says, and when the evening had come, since it was the day of preparation, that is, the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, respected member of the council, who was also himself looking for the kingdom of God, took courage and went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Pilate was surprised to hear that he should have died already. And summoning the centurion, he asked him whether he was dead, already dead. And when he learned from the centurion that he was dead, he granted the corpse to Joseph. And Joseph brought a linen shroud and taking him down, wrapped him in the linen shroud and laid him in a tomb that had been cut out of the rock. And he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb and Mary Magdalene, Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, saw where he was laid. I have a question for you this morning. It is a question that I asked myself in preparing this sermon. And that question is this. If you were asked to share the gospel, what would you say? What would be vital to your presentation of the gospel? And what would your content consist of? Perhaps you would explain the obedience of Christ and how his act of obedience fulfills the law for us. And if you're like Spurgeon, maybe you would just make a beeline to the cross and you would explain how Jesus took our sins and suffered the wrath of God and exhausted it upon the cross. Maybe you would wax eloquent and you would tell your audience how the cross affects Satan and his emissaries, how the back of Satan has been broken, how Genesis 3.15 has been fulfilled. The head of Satan has been crushed. And finally, I'm guessing that you would top your message off with the resurrection. And if you're good enough, 
if you're apologetically astute, maybe you would go the Norman Geisler route. You would give us convincing historical evidence concerning the legitimacy of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. But if you're like me, and if you're like anyone else here in the audience, I can assure you of this, that most of us forget the validity and the importance of the burial of Jesus Christ in the gospel message. In Paul's presentation of the gospel in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 1 through 4, Paul includes the gospel as a vital point of his gospel presentation. Why is this important? Why does this matter? Well, as I said earlier, if we wanted to be terse or brief this morning in our reasoning, we could just agree with the Heidelberg Catechism, which simply says that Jesus was buried to prove to us that he was dead. Point blank, we can go home. But there's more to it than that. This passage mentions to us the word dead three times. Mark is concerned with you really believing, seeing, feeling, and accepting that Jesus died and was to be buried. He was not unconscious. He did not swoon. Nor did he have a spiritual body that we just perceived as dead. This man was dead. He was brutally beaten. He was thrust through with a spear to make sure he was dead. He was confirmed to be dead by the Roman centurion who knew how to kill a man and knew when a man was dead. In this passage, we are faced with the grave reality of the death and the burial of Jesus Christ. In this passage, there is a pervasive sense of failure. How is that? Well, can you imagine the enemies of Christ? Can you imagine the, the opponents of Christ and what they must have thought when Christ was dead and when they started to take him down from the cross to bury him? At one point, they had mocked Christ as he clung to the cross. They said he had saved others, but he cannot save himself. Surely Deuteronomy 21, 22 through 23 was in their minds. If this man were loved by God, if he was loved by God, surely he would not be hanging upon this tree and accepting the curse of God. This man, this fraud, this charlatan, has now been finished. And we must erase him from the annals of our history. Not only is there a sense of failure in this passage, or perceived failure, there's a sense of loss. Jesus, who had lovingly and tenderly raised, raised up his disciples, has now departed and is to be buried. He who healed the sick, cast out devils, forgave sin, raised the dead, has now been swallowed by death himself. Some may have whispered, particularly Joseph of Arimathea, this must have been a struggle for Joseph. It would have been a struggle for me because I could hear them whispering within the chambers of their hearts, 
saying, I thought this one would restore the kingdom to Israel. I thought this guy, this Jesus, this guy could raise the dead and produce food. I thought that he would restore all righteousness and make all things right. But now he lays here dead, motionless, lifeless. What does this all mean? It means everything. It means everything. Because in the burial of Jesus Christ, we see the work of Christ on display still. And we see that in the burial of Christ, we see how, in this story, in this narrative, how the burial is to be applied to the Christian life. The first truth we want to point out this morning to you, the first point we want to bring to light is this. In the burial, or Jesus was buried to assure you of the power of his grace. Jesus was buried to assure you of the power of his grace. Verse 42 through 43, notice here, it says, And when the evening had come, since it was the day of preparation, that is, the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, respected member of the council, who was also himself looking for the kingdom of God, took courage and went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. In order to see this point, in order to really grasp it, we are introduced to a very important character in our story, Joseph of Arimathea. Joseph is an interesting man, and in all honesty, externally, he is an impeccable man. We are told that Joseph of Arimathea, in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, that he was a rich man, that he was a righteous man, meaning that he was a man of integrity. We are told that he was a respected man who was a part of the Sanhedrin. Not only that, but he was a man of power. Many scholars believe that Joseph of Arimathea was a lawyer, so he was a man of judicial power. This was a man amongst men. But we are also told that Joseph of Arimathea was a struggling man, that he was a fearful man. We are told in John chapter 19 that he was a, a secret disciple of Christ. He had to hide behind the curtain of his fear. He was convinced, but he was not committed. Time and time again, Joseph is faced with this temptation. Time and time again, he fails. He has to hide in the shadows. Joseph is fearful. He has too much to lose. See, Joseph, you see, he's holding on to too much. Fear of losing his honor, his prestige. Prayer, fear of losing his occupation and his wealth. But it was at the death and burial of Jesus Christ that he was moved to forget his honor, his upstanding position in the Sanhedrin, and step out and commit to Christ. Notice in verse 43, towards the end, it says that this man took 
courage. And he acts for the body of Jesus Christ. This is a courage that he did not have at first. And Charles Spurgeon believed that this was the natural disposition of Joseph of Arimathea. This is the grace of God at work, my friends. God's grace was greater than Joseph's struggle. And it was at the death and burial of Jesus Christ that he gave him the grace to overcome his debilitating fear. Maybe there's some Josephs out here this morning. Man, boy, you wrestle with all types of besetting issues. You're worried about what folks may think about you. You're worried about this to the point where you're thinking about yourself that because of your back and forth position that maybe God's patience has worn sin with you. You've made resolutions. Time and time again, you have made resolutions. And when you're faced with these resolutions, you fail time and time again. But I want you to realize that God's grace to Joseph was not rooted in what Joseph could do for himself, but it was rooted in what God had done for Joseph through Jesus Christ. Joseph took his eyes off of himself for a moment, took his eyes off of his wealth, took his eyes off of his prestigious position, and when he looked at the death and burial of Christ, he was moved to serve and commit himself to Christ. Are you looking to the grace of God like this? Are you looking at yourself and your own abilities to please God and do what you know you can't do without his power? One of my friends had a particular struggle in this area, and I love, I love talking to him about this. He had a particular struggle with his father. The man's not saved. He hates God. And he said, every time I get with my dad, man, we end up in the most bitter arguments. And my dad will send me text messages and he will tell me, I thought you were a child of God. I thought you, you, a Christian, an example of a Christian? No, man. And he said at this, he was crippled by his guilt. So I said, how do you overcome? How do you fight this temptation to fall by the wayside. And he says, Demetrius, in myself, I realize that I will fail every time. I must preach the gospel to myself. I must meditate upon it. I must hold it as my own. And in seeing what Christ has done for sinners, I am always encouraged to look for him to my, for my righteousness and for my help to love those who are perceivably unlovable. What are your struggles this morning? 
those besetting sins. Fear of the crowd, fear of open profession, fear of loss or man. Maybe uh, this, your sin has crippled you by guilt. How do you carry on? How do you overcome same way Joseph did? By looking to the death and burial of Jesus Christ and that he did that for you. And as Romans 6 says, we are buried with Christ and because of his burial, we receive grace to walk in a new life. Romans 6, 4. Are you looking to the grace of Christ again for, for your overcoming power? I wonder what you would have done with Joseph if you were God. Again, Joseph? Really? My son says that. Really? 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 Again? You're faced with fear? You fall again? You're faced with fear? You fall again? Come on, man, I'm done with you. That's what we would have done if we were gods. But you see, I want you to look at this. Even in Joseph's struggles, the Lord was patient with him and his grace was proven to be greater than his weakness. If you're a child of God, you have been purchased by the blood of Christ and I do not want you to be tempted that God is done with you because he's not. You see, we're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, but the grace whereby we are saved never leaves us alone, never abandons us. Philippians 1.6, being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion unto the day of Christ. It is the grace of God through the gospel that will carry us just like it carried Joseph. Number two, the burial of Christ warns us, it sternly warns us concerning the sin of mishandling Christ and the grave consequences for doing so. Verses 44 through 45. Pilate was surprised to hear that he should have already died and summoning the centurion, he asked him whether he was already dead. And when he learned from the centurion that he was dead, he granted the, notice this, no, don't forget these small little points. Notice what Pilate thinks of Jesus. He granted the corpse to Joseph. Not Jesus, the corpse to him. If Joseph was a man who was changed by the grace of God, who came to embrace Christ through his death and burial, Pilate was a man who rejected the grace of God through the death and burial of Christ. My friends, this is a tragic picture or of the destructive power of sin and its ability to harden the best and the worst of all men. We underestimate the power of sin, don't we? You know, several weeks ago, 
my wife had to go to choir practice. I, I hope that's approved by Shelby. I don't know what he calls it. And you know, you can, you can get on Shelby's bad side with that, you know, so I just want to make sure. But she and my youngest son, they have this thing going. You see, I've fallen out of grace with him too. They have this thing where I will pray for everybody else, but he doesn't want me to pray for him. I don't know if, you know, I prayed and something didn't come to pass or what, you know. But on this night, he asked me to pray for him. Hey, Daddy, would you pray for me? Sure. So we prayed. And I said, hey, man, could you tell me what the gospel is? Oh, yeah, Daddy. Yeah, I know what the gospel is. And he rehearses the gospel. I mean, this guy goes into the law, too, man. I mean, he's good, you know. He goes into the law. And he's like, he gets quiet and he starts looking around. I'm like, what's wrong? What's wrong, buddy? He says, you know those laws? I've only broken four of them my whole entire life. We underestimate the power of sin, don't we? Just like my little man, only four. Man, you're doing bad if you, if, I mean, four of them? James 2.19 says you break one, you've broken them all. You see, we underestimate the power of sin. Pilate underestimated the power of sin. Pilate was a man who was confronted by Jesus Christ on multiple occasions. No doubt he heard about Jesus Christ as he ministered in Israel. And time and time again, he has faced with Christ. He has presented with Christ. And time and time again, he attempts to rid himself of Christ. In his first major encounter with Jesus, he talks to him and he finds out that he is a part of Herod's jurisdiction. And he's like, great, man, I don't have to deal with him. I'll send him over to Herod. Herod looks at him. Herod's like, I can't do anything with him. Send him back to Pilate. Pilate gets him again. He's like, this guy's back again? He looks to the Sanhedrin. Why don't you judge him? Judge him according to your law. I don't want to have anything to do with him. And finally, he so devalues the person of Christ that in verse 45, he no longer sees Jesus anymore. He sees a corpse. That's what Jesus is to him. He's just a corpse to be discarded, thrown out. Day by day, hour by hour, minute by minute, Pilate rejects Jesus, and day by day, his conscience becomes cold and hard by his persistent sin of rejecting Jesus. Can you hear his wife plead to him, have nothing to do with this righteous man. Be careful how you deal with this man. Be careful how you handle Christ. After he sanctions what John Piper calls the most spectacular sin in human history, Pilate is so dead in his sin, so accustomed to rejecting Christ, that Jesus goes from being the king of the Jews to behold the man to he's dead, get him out of my face. He's just a corpse to me. He's nothing. After this account, Pilate is no longer heard of. 
Sure, you know, Acts chapter 4 talks about what he did in the past, but in the future, he's no longer heard of. History is silent as to what exactly happened to Pilate. But the Encyclopedia Britannica says this of Pilate. It's one of the most popular stories of what happened to him, and it expresses his fate that he was summoned to Rome by Caligula. And if any of you are up on your history, you know that Caligula was a bad man. And Caligula brought him to Rome because Pilate manifested an, un it said an unusual brutality at the Battle of Mount Gerzim. Caligula is infuriated at his rebellion and what he has done. Now, if Caligula is summoning you back to Rome, you must be a bad man. And Pilate looks at him, or Caligula looks at Pilate, and he says to him, I want you, this is what I want you to do. I want you to go off. I want you to go off into exile, and I want you to kill yourself. And the story goes that he walked off, and he killed himself. No more second chances. No more turning over a new leaf. No more face-to-face -face encounters with Jesus Christ. Pilate is gone. Pilate's mishandling of Christ cost him. His sin was costly. The only man that could save him from his sin, he finally rejected. This burden is off of my plate. Let me ask you this question this morning. How are you mishandling Christ? How are you rejecting the grace of Christ that speaks to you to come to him? Demetrius, I don't, you know, I don't get down with this Bible thing. I don't get down with this Christianity, you know. We're, we're, we're uh, intellectually superior these days. You know, this is crazy, man. You know, I'm down with Dawkins. You know, I'm down with the flying spaghetti monster. You know, that's what I'm down with. That's how I feel it. I remember preaching for several years in the prisons of Virginia. Every Monday night, hustling, preaching. This is one prison. I think this guy hated my guts. But he had enough of me one night. And he said, man, listen, I don't believe anything about God. Why? His answer, I can't see him. I can't talk to him. You know, I can't feel him. So I said, let me ask you a question, sir. I said, if I were to walk into this facility, and I said to you that Jay Norman doesn't exist, the architect of this building, what would you say to me? He said, I'd say you were crazy. I said, why? Because we're in a building that this man created. And I said this, I said, you see, every time you see a thunderstorm 
and you feel its power and the sound waves of the thunderstorm shake your home. God is speaking to you, sir. He is speaking to you of the power that you must face outside of Christ. I said, every time you see a lion roar, God speaks to you of his majesty. Every time you bite into a ripe summer peach and your taste buds partake of its sweetness, God is speaking to you about his sweetness. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Every time your mother embraced you and she wept over you for coming to prison, you were God was manifesting his great love towards you. And if you were to perceive the complexity of a DNA strand, God is telling you of his wisdom and knowledge. I said, sir, the evidence is against you. Psalm 19 says that God speaks to you from his created order every day. You will stand without him, before him with guilt. But God speaks to you in a greater way today. Hebrews 1 says he speaks to us through his son. Through his death and burial. Will you continue to mishandle Christ sinfully this morning? Will you go on handling him in this way? At the expense of your soul? I'm warning you today that the mercy of God is not promised to you Tomorrow is not promised to you this next minute, this next second. The common grace of God is not promised to shine upon you. Will you continue to mishandle Christ like Pilate? I know what some of the Christians are saying here today. Oh, you know, well, that's for them. You know, that's for the atheists. That's for this guy. No, it's for you too. It's for you and I. How are you and I mishandling Christ, how are we mishandling the person of Christ? How are we locking arms with Pilate and becoming buddies with Pilate and saying, just, you know, just get him away from us. He's just a corpse to be discarded. I'll do my own thing. Perhaps you are mishandling Christ by virtue of his word and promises to you concerning your justification. This is what they did in Psalm 107.11. says they rebelled against the words of God and spurned the counsel of the Most High. This is how we reject Jesus Christ, by doing despite to his word and his promises and his commands to us to believe on him. Perhaps you're crippled by fear. You don't believe that Jesus will take care of you. Perhaps you're a lone ranger type of Christian. You want to do it yourself when God has ordained you to be in a body and not do this thing alone. How are you and I mishandling Christ? It is at the death and burial of Jesus Christ, that he reminds us of the grave consequences of our 
sin. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. Point number three, our last point. The burial reminds us that the work of Christ and his work upon the cross has been completed. It's done. Nothing else needs to be done. 46 and 47. And Joseph brought a linen shroud and taking him down, wrapped him in the, li in the linen shroud and laid him in a tomb that had been cut out of rock. And he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, Joseph saw where he was laid. When you go to a funeral, there's a sense of finality, isn't there? There was a great sense of closure and finality here in this particular situation, in this narrative. You see, Joseph goes, he takes Jesus down, he puts Jesus in the tomb, they rolled the stone over the tomb, the women come, they look, they see where Jesus is buried, and they're like, oh, it's done. Ministry's done. Kaput. It's, it's gone. You see, they did not see nor hear the voice of Jesus speaking to them through this burial event of the greater finality that he came to bring to everyone who would ever believe in him. It is at the burial that Jesus reminds us that he is really our substitute. You ever notice here, if you read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the story of Joseph of Arimathea and the burial, that this tomb, it doesn't belong to Jesus. You know that? It belongs to Joseph. Jesus is identifying with Joseph. He's speaking to them from the tomb and saying, I am your sufficient substitute. I have tasted death for everyone that the second death may bypass them. In the burial, Jesus speaks to us concerning the wrath of God. He says that the wrath of God that was against you, that would crush you, it rests here exhausted in the grave with me. No more wrath for you. In the burial, he tells us that Satan, yes, he has been crushed. Don't let him think that he has authority over you. I am seated above all principalities and powers. I have the keys of death and hell, not Satan. He's crushed. And here in John 19, and John 19 particularly, it says that Jesus was buried in a garden tomb. Why is that important? You see, the first Adam brought sin to us in the original garden. And the second Adam crushes sin in another garden. Notice what Matthew Henry says of this. 
he says this about the burial of Christ. In the Garden of Eden, death and the grave first received their power, and now in, the, in a garden they are conquered, disarmed, and triumphed over. In a garden, Christ began his passion, and from a garden he would rise and begin his exaltation. Jesus came to live the life that you and I were supposed to live, die the death that you and I were supposed to die under the wrath and wrath of God and with our sin, that you may go free, that you may live in the newness of life. We have been buried with Christ. He is our substitute. And next week, Robert is going to tell you that when he got up from the grave, he gave us, Romans 6, the power to live in the newness of life. You've been listening to a message by Demetrius White given at Redemption Hill Church in Richmond, Virginia. For more information on the church and to hear other messages, please visit us online at www.redemptionhill.com.